Morning, everyone. It's a blessing to see you all. Another nice spring day, isn't it? We're um, we're going to be taking our text again uh, from the Book of Romans this morning. And uh, before we get into it, I'll open um, in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you, dear Lord, for, for a wonderful blessing, dear Lord, a time of, of fellowship, Father, and a time of communion, dear Lord, as well, that we can come together and, and hear the reading of your word and to, to have it understood, dear Lord, and to have it impact our lives that we might be better served, Father, to impact the lives of the world around us. We ask, dear Father, that you would help us grow, convict us of our sin, dear Lord, that we might be indeed changed, that we might be changed into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But also, dear Father, convict the hearts of those that are yet to know you, Lord. And, uh, and we don't ask this, dear Father, in any derogatory way at all, Lord. We, we ask this, dear Lord, because of the burden of our hearts and... We know, dear Lord, that which is to come, and we ask you, dear Father, that uh, your word would impact them, that they would rejoice in the wonderful, wonderful hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the only hope, dear Lord, in, uh, in a time, dear Lord, such as this. Now, I just praise you, dear Father, and I thank you, dear Lord, that you've given me a word for this morning, and I pray, Father, that, um, that your spirit, dear Lord, would open the minds and the hearts of all that hear that you would guard my tongue also, dear Father, and let me speak only those things, dear Lord, that you would want me to utter. I praise you in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Now, there's, there's times, I don't know if you experience it, there's those times where you, you just want to stay in prayer. You know, you, 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 you really don't even want to raise your head at times, you know, you just want to stay with the Lord in prayer. And it's, um, it's just such a soothing and beautiful time. Um, I've been burdened a lot lately over things that are going on in the world today. Um, and it's hard to say excited. It, for a Christian, it's exciting to see things that are going on. But also for, for those that, that, that know what's coming because of what the Bible teaches, it's also a tremendous burden. I, I get stuck between, between asking for the Lord to return and for that rapture to occur, that, that time where the church is going to be caught up and meeting the Lord in the air. And, uh, and I'll look for that time because, as we all know, there's very few problems that the rapture won't solve. But we also know that once that event happens, there is going to be incredible tribulation on earth during that time. And unless you're information is coming from that wonderful mushroom factory known as the modern media. I call it a mushroom factory because that's all they seem to do is keep us in the dark and feed us rubbish. Um, if, if your information is just coming from the newspapers and from the television, you're not seeing what's going on. You're not seeing all the events that we have spoken about in scripture coming to pass. And, and as we're seeing these things happen, um, as we're seeing the, the hatred again coming towards the Jews 
and the entire world starting to come slowly against them, as we're starting to see the, the immorality being sanctified by the nations, exactly as the Bible teaches about the last days, as we see the church itself moving away. Faith indeed and the love of the Lord is indeed starting to move away from the truth. As we're starting to see more and more that people are accumulating to themselves teachers having, having itching ears and... Um, as we see the financial crisis just right on the brink and we look and we can see that there's, there's going to be a time where that single currency is going to come together as we, we see the Pope now sanctifying, um, you know, uh, sin and, and, and offering blessings and prayers to, for, for those that are, that are needing of a saviour and then saying, who am I to judge, he says, you know, these people's hearts. As we're seeing this continually happening in the world today, we can see the Bible coming alive. You know, like I said, on the one hand, uh, it's exciting, if you know the Lord. On the other hand, it's a tremendous burden also, if you know the Lord and you have a love for your family and the people that are around you and the people that don't know the Lord. Um, so it's in, together with that, <laughs> together with seeing all this stuff going on, and I... We're up to Romans chapter 8. And, and, um, and Romans chapter 8 is, the, is what we see as the wonderful high point for those that are in Christ. It's the high point of Scripture. And it gives to us a knowledge of eternal life that it's, that it's accessible but a, and not, not, that it's been done, that it's settled. And it speaks about everything that's going to, that's gone before. Now, I had intended, with all good intention, to 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 expound to you the first eleven verses of Romans chapter eight. Um, that was my intention. I wrote it all down, and um, I go right, and I broke it up into four uh, four points. You know, so I broke up all the eleven verses into four four points. And, um, and each point had two segments of it, you know, because they were all, so there's a lot of contrasts in here. And it was really, really good. I got excited. So I started on the, the first half of the first point, which was the first half of the first verse. And um, in the end, I wrote a sermon on it. And I, I, I left the, the ten and a half verses that follow for perhaps another time. And I'm really sorry. I, I will try and make sure that I get those together. There was just so much in this portion of Scripture. So if you're in Romans chapter 8, if you're in Romans chapter 8, let's, um, let's begin our text through this. The Bible says... There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, 
but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. There's a lot being said there. So you can understand why I couldn't get past the first half of the first verse and it simply says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The second part of it says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We'll touch on that next time and explain that a little bit more. But just to, just to make sure I can um, quell your own thoughts at this particular point, please understand that that is not a condition. Okay? That is not a condition. There's two particular ways that people have looked at that portion in the past. The vast majority of commentators today have disregarded it completely. They believe it's not in the originals. Um, it's false. It's actually, we know that it comes from the earliest of manuscripts and we know that it's in the majority of them. But on the one hand, you've got the liberals who look at that as a, um, who reject it because they look at it as, as a condition. Um, and others who look at it as a description. And what we'll discover is that who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit is actually a description of those who are in Christ. I read the entire portion of the first 11 verses so you can actually see the context of it and you can do that again in your own time that you'll be able to see and recognise that clearly it's a description of those who are born again, those who are in Christ, those who are, have now no condemnation. Okay? So anyway, on that first half of the first verse, I put together um, five points. First one is that within that text, it is the ultimate present tense. It's the ultimate present tense. Have a look at it. It says, There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There is now. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. These, these 13 words um, give us this great hope. Okay? We know that language is, um, is the framework from which we obtain knowledge. Right? Language is that, is that tool that uh, without it, it's really difficult to know anything. You need language. When we think, we think with words, don't we? We don't, we don't think in abstract ways, otherwise it's instinct. It's not, it's not really thought, it's, it's instinct. It's something that happens. Um, we know that um, <coughs> language is the building block of understanding. It's the building block of wisdom. We know that language can also be emotional. We know that it's logical. And we know that language binds thought. It's been said that a paragraph, a paragraph is a complete thought. A paragraph is a complete thought. Um, I might have mentioned to you once before that when I was in Italy, um, it was really interesting because I started speaking a lot of Italian when I was there. I never spoke it much 
at home, but when I got to Italy, I didn't really have much of a choice, and I had to speak a lot. And I discovered, to my absolute shock, that I was thinking in Italian. And at that, up until that point, I had no idea that we actually thought with words. We think with words, you know? I had no idea. So, words are vitally important. Good use of language can unite a nation. It can inspire exploits. It can govern people, it can lead to war, it can also bring nations to peace. Good use of language. Two of the smallest words in a language can commit a couple together till death parts them. The words I do bind the husband to the wife and the two become one flesh. Two words. Two words. And yet they provide a contractual agreement. But those two words, I do have more than just the meaning of the word. They're also a tense to it, isn't it? What's the tense in the word I do, the words I do? Present. It's a present tense. And I know that it was a present tense when I said I do. So when I said I do almost 25 years ago to my beautiful wife, it was in the present tense. And it remains in the present tense. Because if those words were uttered by me again today, it is exactly the same. I do. If the conditions to our marriage were again given to me, it would be I do. It was in the present tense then, it remains in the present tense now, 24 odd years later. So as long as that commitment is honoured, it will always be in the present tense. Make sense? Always be in the present tense. So we see the importance of these tenses also in Scripture. Um, Jesus defends the resurrection. He, gets, he has the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him and they ask him, they give him this story about, uh, about seven brethren, um, each of them having this same one wife. So the first one has the wife and then he dies and then the next one has the same wife. The idea is to raise up children to that first one and then he dies and then the next one does it. Right up until the seventh and the Sadducees ask the Lord Jesus Christ and they says, in the resurrection whose, whose uh, wife shall she be? Because the seven had her to wife. Jesus then explains to them that they are not given in marriage in, the, in eternity. But then he says something really important. He says, but that the dead are raised, we understand from Scripture. Because God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What was he hinging on? He was hinging on the present tense of I am. I am. It's a present tense. So the entire resurrection was defended by the Lord Jesus Christ based on nothing other than the present tense of a pronoun. Interesting, isn't it? How important these things are, and yet we often take them for granted. And here we have it again in the ultimate sense. There is, therefore now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there was Right? There was no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It's exactly the same thing when it comes to Scripture. The Bible says that um, about Scripture, it says that Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It doesn't say Scripture was given by inspiration of God. It's perpetually in the present tense. Why? Because the Bible teaches that God is the one that preserves His Word. 
Uh, what do we have in the vast majority of constitutions in, every, in most of the churches, most of the schools around? We believe that the Bible was perfect in the originals. Jesus didn't even have the originals. No one had the originals other than those ones that wrote it. But yet the text says scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's in the present tense. It remains in the present tense because God is the one that preserves his word. Again, the same here. The text doesn't say there was no condemnation to them which are in Jesus. Nothing here, nothing here indicates what some would think, that it's only when we first repent of our sin. Did you ever do that when you were first born again? Uh, I repented of my sin back then. And I know that I was saved back then, but I'm still sinning. Do I gotta, what do I have to do? Um, uh, you know, because I need to stay saved. I need to try and stay saved. And, and I remember being that way. I think like, I'm still struggling with sin. Um, um, I don't understand, you know. Have I lost that which was given to me? So I'm, I'm concerned about it. So there's no was, there is, therefore, now no condemnation. And we believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was saved. Uh, the text says and makes it really clear that it's written in the present tense. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. There's no indication anywhere that this condition might change. Paul uses the phrase emphatically. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You remember the context of Romans chapter 7, yeah? We, we spoke about it last time. Paul was... was, was was speaking about the battle that he has with his own will. The things that he desires to do, he doesn't do. But the things that he doesn't want to do, that's what he ends up doing. And he, he, he confesses that he is a wretched man in this regard. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And almost immediately comes the answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So, guys, it stands to reason that if Jesus Christ is the one who shall deliver me from the body of this death, there is no condemnation. Isaiah says something interesting. He says this. He says, Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? If we have a look at, you're in Romans chapter 8, have a look down at verse 31. Just have a look at what it says there. says, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Make sense? If God is for us, who can be against us? Have a look at verse 33. It says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Brethren, it was in the present tense 2,000 years Ago, It was in the present tense, certainly, when I came to the Lord nearly 20 years ago, and it remains in the present tense for you today. And it will continue in the present tense when we are in eternity. This is an eternal book. This is a book that teaches something that is emphatically present. There is. It's as present as the I am of the Old Testament. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now, second point is that we have now the ultimate summarising conjunction. What a word. Well, summarising is basically a summary of everything that's gone before. A conjunction is a joining word, one that joins what's gone before to what's come up now. It says this, it says, There is therefore 
Now, no condemnation to them which are in Jesus Christ. So we just focused on the two first words, there is, present tense. Now we have this conjunction, this summarising conjunction, therefore. And it provides for us a total reckoning, not only of chapter 7, but of everything that's gone before it. You see, if you recognised yourself as the without excuse sinner of Romans chapter 1, if you've recognised that after your hardness and impenitent heart, you've been storing up wrath against the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God in Romans chapter 2, and if Romans chapter 3 has, has completely left you undone with its statement that there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, they are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable, there is none that doeth good, no, not one, Romans chapter 3, but you were reckoned righteous through faith, the faith of Abraham, believing the promises of God in Romans chapter 4, and if you are therefore you've therefore believed on Christ and you're accounted now as justified by his work, having peace with God as described in Romans chapter 5 and being now baptised into the death of Christ and raised in newness of life in Romans chapter 6 and are finally recognised to be under the governance of a new law in Romans chapter 7, the logical conclusion is there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You understand what the condemnation is? It's easy to banter about a word when you, when you think about that word. Condemnation is that which immediately follows a judgment. Yes? In the case of the judgment of God, it's the same condemnation as the devil. That God came to save us by substituting his son in our place. Our rejection of that substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, paying for our sin, leaves God with no other option but to condemn you with the devil and his angels. The only judgment we have for the devil and his angels is an eternal lake of fire and cast into outer darkness. This is that condemnation. That's why Christ came. Uh, that's why he died. That's why he rose from the dead. And that's why we have the word of God. That's why we have the Bible. It's the very reason why we have the scriptures. It's the very reason why you endure Sunday mornings listening to people preaching and teaching about this word of God. It's the very reason why the Lord gave us that great commission. The one that lines up exactly with the reason why he came. To seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, Paul says, of which I am chief. That's the very purpose of Christ's coming. That's why he came. To save. To save. Why? Because our sin puts us in the same condemnation as the devil. And I'll explain later why it's so important that God actually told us that. So, third point. It's the ultimate relief of some. It's the ultimate relief of of some. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation. Not now, not ever, will those which are in Christ Jesus face condemnation. We are free from sin now, from sin now, and we will be sin free in eternity. 
Jesus Christ propitiated the judgment that was against us. What it says in Isaiah is with his stripes we are healed. With his stripes we are healed. It's known um, in theological terms as substitutionary atonement. Big word, big phrase. But we are atoned through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's substitutionary because the Lord Jesus Christ died and shed his blood in our place. Okay? That's why it's substitutionary. He did this for the entire world. To those that believe, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation ever. However, guys, this isn't a simple case of forgiving a debt we're owed. You know, um, there's no such thing as free grace, okay? Uh, there's always a cost somewhere. There's always a cost somewhere. If you borrow money and, um, and you don't pay that money, even if you've been forgiven that debt, someone's had to pay for it. An uh, example is, let's say, for example, I'm in business, I've got clients... Um, let's say they owe me thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. But that company, under our governing laws, liquidates, okay, and is declared bankrupt, okay. That individual who owns that company is now free from his obligation of paying the debt, okay. Does that mean that the cost was not incurred? No. Who pays the cost? I do. I pay the cost. Okay? Just because he was forgiven the debt by the government doesn't, doesn't mean, it doesn't follow that there is no cost involved. It's exactly the same when it comes to grace. Simply because the Lord Jesus Christ has substituted his life for ours, that the wrath of God was put on him, not us, does not mean that there was no cost. The cost had to be paid. It had to be given. Jesus suffered the wrath of God and was separated from the Father. He endured the cross, became a ransom for our sins, for the sins of the world, through the shedding of his blood for the remission of sins. Turn, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. So you go roughly to the middle of your book and turn right. So if you hit the Psalms, you've gone too far. It's after Ecclesiastes. Chapter 53. Now, this is a book that was written some 700-odd years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I just want you to focus on a particular portion of this. And it says here, in verse 4, it says, it's speaking of this one. You have to, you have to look at this. I mean, even from... from, from you, know, you can't help but go through this entire chapter and see such a link with who this is speaking about. But you'll have a look at it, and this is really interesting about it, because Isaiah speaks of this in a different tense. He speaks about this in the past tense, which is really fascinating, because you see, the things as far as God is concerned have already happened, even though they're yet to happen in time. Okay, Have a look at it for verse 4. It says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. 
And with his stripes, we are healed. With his stripes, we are healed. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. This is the gospel presented with such beautiful clarity in the Old Testament. Yet, it's speaking about an individual who is yet to come. Who is yet to fulfill this. But as far as God is concerned, this is done. This is done. God knows the end from the beginning. That's one of the reasons why you have to take comfort in what's going on in the world today. It's God that's setting the stage. The lighting is prepared. The actors have already done their rehearsal. The orchestra is seated. All we're waiting for at the moment is the curtains to be unveiled and see the work of God being done within this world. On the one hand, it's exciting for us as Christians because we know that the Lord's going to be coming very, very soon. There has never been a time where there has ever been such a convergence of events as we see today that the scripture teaches about. We are living in the most exciting time. Honestly, I didn't really believe that all this stuff was going to be happening in my lifetime and yet I'm seeing it unveiled. And this is why when the text says what it text, what the text says about there being no condemnation in the present tense, it means there is none. Guys, with respect to this debt... Just as the lifting of the debt is borne by the one who extended the credit. You listening? So just as the lifting of the debt is borne by the one who extended the credit, so too is the forgiveness of your sin borne by the one who extended you life. Okay? And just as the debtor needs to appeal to have his debt removed, so too does the sinner need to appeal to have his sin forgiven. You need to appeal unto the Lord for this. You have to appeal. If you would hear, if you would hear the plea of God for your souls, if you would hear him, if you could see the burden that he had for you to, to bring his son to die in your place, if you could see that his burden, and that burden then extended to all the preachers of the gospel from 2,000 years ago to today. Burden within our hearts for your souls. How can you just sit there and wait? How can you just sit there and wait? There is no condemnation, but it's only to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's to them. It's to them. This promise given in the first half of this first verse is to the ultimate relief, remember what I said, of some. Any some. Any some. Any some. All some who believe the gospel will know this relief. This isn't, this isn't just for a select handful of individuals. Jesus didn't. He died for the elect. Who are the elect? All who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. All who come unto me, I will in no wise cast out. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the entire world. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are few that will come to the Lord. And that's why our hearts are so burdened, because we know what the world's going to be going through. And I hate to tell you this, but uh, I, I could speak for myself. 
Um, when the rapture happens, I'm not going to be here to share the gospel. I'm not going to be here to share the gospel. There, there's some in this church who will still be here. It's not the end, though. And this is really important. When the rapture occurs, if you find yourself still here, you must, must seek the Lord with all your heart right there and then. Right there and then. You will know that the rapture has occurred. You will know. Because there will be many that won't be here. But if you are, that is the only escape you'll have. Will you go through the tribulations of the world? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. I'm sorry to say it. But your eternity will be secured in Christ still. The gospel will be ever present. Ever present. Still during that time. Remember the Bible says really clearly, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Guys, you may never hear the gospel again. And, and, and I've got to sort of preach to you, and I know pastor wants to preach to you in the same way, that this is the last message that you're ever going to hear. You know, it's the last message we're ever going to preach because we don't know when the Lord's going to return. It could be any moment. We don't know. The Bible speaks about being imminent. This could be the only time you get the chance to hear the gospel. There's one thing that's certain, and that is most of the people who die today are making plans for tomorrow. Most of the people who die today are making plans for tomorrow. You have the gospel here in the first half of the first verse of Romans chapter 8. It's that ultimate relief to some. Fourth point, the ultimate discrimination. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. To them. Only to them. Only to those which are in Christ Jesus. This relief discriminates all other people. If you are not one of them, you remain in your sins now. Your debt remains heavy upon you now you are condemned already. You are condemned already. The passage says that there is therefore now no condemnation does not now apply to you if you are not one of them that are in Christ Jesus because it only applies to them which are in Christ Jesus now. Those who are not in Christ Jesus now remain in their sins and are condemned already. As one held in remand like one held in remand. You only wait for the judgment, but your condemnation is now pending its realisation. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. Gospel of John chapter 3. New Testament. Last Gospel. You've gone to Acts, you've gone too far. John chapter 3. That famous, famous passage in the Bible. See what the Lord says here as he's speaking to Nicodemus, a man, a ruler of the Jews who actually came to seek him at night. Not willing to come and seek him during the day, obviously. And Jesus speaks to him, he says in verse 14. Now, Nicodemus would understand exactly what the Lord Jesus is speaking about. Some of you may not recognize this, but it's he's quoting, he's speaking about a passage that happened in the book of Numbers, where the serpents were a judgment of God, there was a whole lot of serpents and they were biting the people of God as a judgment of God, a wrath from God upon the people. They were biting the people and the people were dying as a result of that bite. 
Moses prayed that the Lord would have mercy. The Lord told him to put a brazen serpent, a, uh, in other words, a sin, uh, a snake made of brass, put it on a pole, and all who look upon it would be healed. Okay? It's a picture, a forthcoming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of what, how we are healed from our sin. The brazen serpent is a picture of sin judged. It's on a, it's on a, it's on a pole. And, and the Lord links that with himself. He says this in verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's eternal life? It's everlasting life. That's the life. It's everlasting. It's everlasting. It lasts forever. That's eternal life. And he goes on, though, have a look. It doesn't finish there. It says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then it explains it here. Listen. He says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned when? Condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, let his deeds should be reproved. You see, the text that we have discriminates. It's only those in Christ now that are free from any condemnation. Only them are totally free. Those that here who insist on retaining their sin remain condemned. Guys, there's no fence sitters in eternity. There's no fence sitters in eternity. They don't exist. You can't be halfway between eternity and death. You can't be halfway. It's like you can't be a little bit pregnant, you know. It's sort of the same. You can't be a fence-sitter when it comes to this. You can't say, hmm, heard it, yeah, yeah, makes sense to me, yep. All right, well, when I've got a chance, I'll, uh, you know, I'll think about it a little bit more, you know. Are we going to be like Herod in the book of Acts or Agrippa in the book of Acts? Almost thou persuadest me to become a Christian. Is that what we're going to be? Are we going to be almost Christians? Well, an almost Christian will have his place in the lake of fire. His sin remains upon him. He remains condemned already. He remains condemned already. There are no almost Christians. They don't exist. You can't be born into it from when you were a babe. It's not a nationalistic identity. All right? You cannot be a Christian unless you're born again. It was John Bunyan that actually had that wonderful quote that he says, An egg is not a chick, though it falls from a hen, nor a man a Christian, lest he's born again. Okay? That's the reality. You must be born again. You must recognise the state of your sin before a holy God and seek the relief of your souls. This, this condemnation, if you're not dealing with it and you're hoping that somehow this is going to come 
uh, you'll eventually have a deathbed experience or something like that. The condemnation is not practically administered until the very moment your breath stops. Grace of God is available to you for your entire life. You just don't know when that life finishes. Life is short. The text only applies to them which are in Christ Jesus now. It's the ultimate discrimination. Sadly, the devil has successfully deluded the world into thinking that the gospel is pluralistic, not particular. It's for everybody, not some. And it is for everybody, the gospel, but salvation is not. It's only for some, and it's for those who believe. This has deluded everyone from the New Age to Roman Catholicism today. There is no eternity in hell. There is everyone finds themselves in heaven eventually. If that's true, why did Jesus need to come? Why did he need to die? Why did he need to suffer? Why did he need to rise from the dead? Why are we being charged to share the gospel of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel to the world? Why? Why have we got the Bible if everybody just goes to heaven? The Bible doesn't teach that at all. This is a lie and it's a lie of the devil and the biggest lie that the devil can give you today is there's time. Plenty of time. That is the greatest lie and I can tell you right now most people who have heard the gospel believe it. There's time. There's time. I'm telling you, time's running out. Relationship, reconciliation. Look, I just want to touch on this really, really quickly because I don't have a lot of time. We've got one more point to get through. But um, you can't reconcile a relationship. The relationships that we have with each other are really, really important relationships. They are relationships that, that, that bring happiness to us. Everything else can go wrong in the world, but if you've got a good relationship with the people that are around you, you know what? You're generally going to be okay and you'll be happy. Everything can be fantastic in the world, but if you've got a broken relationship with one person, you're miserable for days. You're constantly thinking about that person. You're arguing with them in your heart. You haven't even spoken to them, but you're already having a blue. You know what I mean? And there's two things that actually prevent that relationship from coming together. The first one is that You've been hurt by someone, but they don't know they've hurt you. And you don't tell them. Right? You don't tell them that you've been hurt. Assuming that they'll know. Alright? The second thing that stops that relationship from coming together is that you haven't considered your own faults in any matter. You've never looked at your own self and you've never considered that you might have hurt someone. And on top of that, even when you do recognise it, you won't go to them and ask them for forgiveness. Make sense? Either of those two, can you be reconciled to one another? You can't be. You stay separated. You stay separated. So our refusal to let the offender know that we've been hurt is the first one and we will not consider our faults and confess them to one another is the second one. If I've been hurt, whether perceived or real... And I don't let my ignorant, self-absorbed friend, brother, sister, mother, father or other know that I've been hurt. I am willfully preventing any reconciliation from even beginning. Make sense? I'll complain and I'll whinge about that person and what that person's done to me to everybody else but that person. Right? Clearly, I'd rather be without them 
than to have them and sadly lose a blessed relationship because I refused to tell them that I was hurt, whether it's perceived or real. God's made clear to us where we stand with him. He's made it clear. You see, he desires reconciliation. He desires reconciliation. He wants to be brought together with every single person that he's created. He wants to be brought together. So he's done everything on his part. He's given us the commandments. He's given us the word of God. He, he came in the flesh. God manifest in the flesh. Born of a child. <coughs> grew. The miracles that were given. He's given us prophetic verses in scripture that we can today see what's going on in the world. We can today see the things that are going on in the world exactly as the Bible's predicted and taught. He's given us pastors, ministers of the Word of God. And you've heard it. You know it. He's done everything on his part to know that he has been offended. And he desires reconciliation. He uses a number of different ways of doing it. Another one is pain. We don't have to just hear the Word of God. We can just experience life. He goes through circumstances. I... I I had the blessed time of actually sharing the gospel with an, with an ex-full patch member of the Hells Angels last week. And that was interesting, you know. And it was only because as I was talking to him, he's telling me about all the stuff that, go, that, he, that he's gone through in his life. And I'm looking at him going, Tim, I reckon God's knocking on your hard hat, mate. You know, he goes, you reckon? I go, mate, I reckon, you know. And I got an opportunity to share my testimony of the things that went through in my life, the pains that I went through in my life that brought me to my knees before a holy God. C.S. Lewis said this, he says, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's what he does. When you're going through these weird things, that's, that's the Lord knocking on your door and it's worth listening to. So just as the person hurt gives you the opportunity to reflect and to be reconciled to them, so God does continually until he can do no more. As long as the flame of life flickers in you, God seeks to save you from sin. But you must respond to the gospel and believe. You must. Okay, that other part is when I don't confess my sins. See... When I won't confess my faults to another person, and I know that I've done something wrong to a person, but I stubbornly refuse to admit my fault to them and ask them for their forgiveness, what am I saying? I'm saying that I enjoy my company without you. If you're not willing to be reconciled to another person, I enjoy my company without you. Your pride is what needs to be abased. Your pride is what needs to be set aside. What does it take, guys? What does it take to say sorry? Yeah, the first thing it takes? Humility. It takes humility. It means that you have to humble yourself. And you have to go to a brother or a sister that you've offended and hurt. And you have to beg them of forgiveness. You know? Do you know sometimes you might have hurt somebody not realising that you've done it? Or they might not even realise that you've done it, but the Lord has put that on your heart so terribly. You humble yourself before them. But no, 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 no. You, you want to remain with yourself and your pride and eventually you'll be alone forever. 
And we have this breaking down in families and, and husband and wife relationships all over the world today. And what's happening? We've got a lot of lonely people out there. There's a lot of lonely people out there and it's simply because they refuse to humble themselves to one another. So, if it's your stubborn pride that's more valuable to yourself, you won't come and acknowledge your sin before God and you won't ask Him to forgive you of your sin and you will find yourself alone for all eternity. The relationship that you scorn today, you will be granted for eternity. Make sense? John chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath eternal life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. How can your sins be forgiven other than by the one in which they are incurred? Last point. I'm summarising that last one. So the text discriminates. It's only to... It's only to them um, which are in Christ Jesus. The last point, the ultimate union. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. As I, as I explained before regarding, regarding our debt, regarding, regarding any debt, there's no point in appealing to another authority to have the debt lifted. Make sense? No point. No point. If you've occurred a debt in Australia, there's no point going to the European Parliament to get your debts lifted. Yeah? If you've offended a family member, there's no point going to your mate to ask him to forgive you. Does it make sense? Okay. It's exactly the same when it comes to sin. You can't have sin lifted and be relieved of that and have no condemnation for your sin through any other than the one you've sinned. Make sense? You have to go to Him. Who do we sin against? We sin against God. We need to come to God. Turn your Bibles to Luke. If you were in John before, turn backwards. One, chap, one book. Luke chapter 5 is what we're looking for. And you find something fascinating in this text. There's a lot of people that hear that there's a lot of people in the world today, and especially liberal theologians, that say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Yet, the Pharisees and the Jews recognised his claim. Luke chapter 5, verse 18. And behold, you there? Okay, if you found it, read with me. And behold, men brought, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in, and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What the Pharisees were saying was 100% right. Makes sense. Who can forgive sins but God? How can Jesus say he's forgiven sins? This speaking is speaking blasphemy. Unless he's God, he's speaking blasphemy. Sins can never be forgiven by anyone other than whom we sin against. Okay, only God can forgive sin, and no sinner can forgive the sins of another sinner on behalf of God. Okay, so that rules out the entire hierarchy of some of the churches today. Okay, 
No priest can forgive your sin. No bishop can forgive your sin. No pope can forgive your sin. Okay? Only God can forgive sin. And this is curious because they're complaining about, about who's forgiving sin. Jesus says, and when he saw their faith, in verse 20, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Claims have been made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, 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 he saw what was happening in their hearts, the hearts of the people that were, that were complaining. And he actually says to them in verse 23, he says, Tell me, whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins... He said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. You see, the signs are really easy to see. A miracle is really easy to see when it occurs in front of you. But the greatest miracle of all is to have your sins forgiven. It's the greatest miracle of all. But you can't see that, can you? Which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee? I said that, but you don't know that that's actually happened. His sins have been forgiven. But I'll tell you now, rise up and walk. And they saw that clearly. Reconciliation to God can come no other way. If you're still in Luke, turn forward a couple of books to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Book of Acts, chapter 4. Now, the impotent man has just been healed. And and the, the Pharisees... And the leaders are asking by what power, what name it's been done. And we'll take it from verse 7. And it says, And when they had set him in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which is set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And then he says this in verse 12, and I had to say that to get the context. Verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we may be saved. In Hebrews 7.25 it says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. It's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And the union that we have, being in Christ, is an incredible union that the Bible also talks about. In Ephesians it says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. Corinthians says, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? In Romans 6.4 it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. And like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. In 1 Corinthians 15 it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. He says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 8.17 tells us that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is the ultimate union. Oh, I get excited, you know, because I've got, I've got the first half of the first verse. And there's so much. I see, you see the wonderful beauty of the word of God. 
It's infinite as far as the things that it actually brings out. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I'll close with this thought. It's, it's impossible for me to overemphasise the importance of the gospel. It's impossible to overemphasise it. If there is a call in your life to share the word of God, do it. If there's a call in your life to preach the gospel, do it. If you see a person suffering and struggling with their own sins, tell them of the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. What shame is there? There's no shame. With everything that's happening today, if you're not seeing it, it means that you're not reading your Bible and you are seriously distracted by many other things that are going on in your life. You need to simplify your life a little bit so we can share the wonderful truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this regarding that verse. He says, As there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, so we may solemnly say, There is therefore now a most weighty condemnation on you who are not in Christ Jesus. What that text says about some, it says the opposite about others. It's a vitally important portion of the Bible. It gives us hope as Christians. Because we know there is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because we are in Christ Jesus. But don't tell me you don't have a family member you can't share the gospel with. And you do it, guys, you don't do it in you do it at heart of love. You understand? They won't receive the gospel if it's just a matter of putting them down and saying you believe something that's wrong. You know, I've done that and I've turned away more people than I've ever brought to the Lord. You know, this is not about who is right and who is wrong. This is about a heart that knows eternity, that understands what eternity stands for, what's going to happen to these people without the truth of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the word of God. We can preach about the gospel and, and talk about it, dear Father, for hours and hours and hours. It's such a wonderful joy, dear Lord. We know, dear Father, of your work, dear Lord, in hearts and in lives even today. And I ask you, dear Father, please, and if you have, if you have indeed, if your spirit has indeed imposed himself upon any member here, any individual here within this congregation, that they will not rest until they acknowledge their offence before a holy God and ask to be saved. And salvation is nothing more than this. And yet it is the greatest, most infinite event in, the, in our lives. And that we would have all no condemnation. I pray, dear Father, that that peace, dear Lord, would not be imparted to any person here until they have this settled within their heart. That there would be a constant stirring and a constant wrestling within them until they have this settled. Father, as they listen to the word of God, I pray, dear Father, let the gospel, this wonderful story of love, pierce their hearts that they may believe and be saved. And for those of us who are saved, those of us who know the gospel, let us not take pride in it. Let us humble ourselves, dear Father, and share that word to a dying world. We praise you and we thank you for this time. Let our conversations, dear Lord, be sweet to thee. 
And I pray, dear Lord, that our prayers would rise up as a sweet odour of incense unto you, unto you, dear Lord. We thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.